makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Betty was still at Tanya, what Yanke, Chante was staying up, pages up yellow. Lay Chante, Itaha, Ovogalake, Le, Unki Piki, Hewastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. These are voices from the earth, and it's good for all of us to be here. You are listening to First Voices Radio, Antiochus and Ghost Tour, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopas, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. And regardless, it is the highlands of the Asopus and the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. And I'd like to welcome you, Chante Washte Napechuzapiello, Kevin Schott, who is our guest all the way from Sweden. Kevin Schott is a Norse Gael descendant of the great heathen army that settled in Scotland in the 1800s, or excuse me, in the 800s. Born in 1974 in the Western Isles of Scotland and raised by the women of Clan Donald that have their roots in the Gaelic for the gen- children of the House of Ivar or Ivar. Bonus Ragnarsson on his mother's side. After a visionary yet traumatic childhood raised in the north of England, Kevin signed up for the British Army as an engineer, technician, return environmental and indigenous rights, peaceful direct action activist after the invasion of Kuwait. In 1997, he moved to South Sweden in time for his first of three children to be born. Now a grandfather, he works purely for the environmental and social regeneration and rehabilitation, as well as a strong ally within Indigenous First Nations rights, where invited worldwide. At home in Sweden, he, he took on a struggle to follow original dreaming and build Scandinavia's first full-scale earthship by hand, completely sustainable, home invented by architect Michael Reynolds in Taos, New Mexico and is on track to design and manifest the North's smallest ecological footprint for a family seven generations forward. 
He intends working in the same way for other families on, on completion of this after years of cold climate sustainability regenerative research. The work continues today towards completing the Earth as a Midgard flagship and has a free YouTube channel following the progress called Babel from the Bubble, a determined <laughs> voice against colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, slavery, and the predatory form of invasive capitalism in the world. And his work can be supported through the fundraising private video diary community to be at patreon.com. So you can look for Medicine Ways at patreon.com. And Kevin turns 50, a half century old, and aims to have the black ship completed and fully off-grid by then, as well as surrounded by and covered by an intensive nine-layer food forest with a cold climate north. And I want to welcome you to First Voices Radio, Kevin Schott. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be invited on your show. Well, Kevin, you know, I recently visited this airship that you have, and the whole history of how you came about to this particular space uh, and location that you have now building the the the, the airship. Very interesting to me. It, it's uh, there's a long journey, as I read. Of, of that time when you were young and growing up in the, the Western Isles in, in Scotland and what comes to these places that you're, you are now perhaps I'm maybe misquoting something here, but um, I know that that's where you were raised by the clan Donald and maybe go into just a little bit of that background so people can center your location and who you are. Well, uh, my granddad, John Raymond Donald, he was in the British Navy, so he kept the boating tradition there, but he was, uh, he was kind of playing for the colonial system, but it was during World War II. So after that, I was kind of born at the end of that period, and he'd moved the whole family back up to the traditional islands, uh, the Isle of Lewis and the Outer Hebrides. Um, and that's where my mother gave birth to me, up by Callanish Stone Circle on the, the Isle of Lewis, a local village, fishing village called Stornoway. But um, within a couple of years, he also got um, gardening jobs for Queen Elizabeth around Britain as he retired out of the Navy. So he moved the whole family south into England and then settled in the north of England uh, off her estates, uh, working more privately off her uh, local municipalities so that's really where we stuck and where i grew into my early teens in the northeast of england which was a pretty grim place i guess because a lot of nature was already being covered over and industrialized and dirtied and not really thought about kindly anymore um but uh when i was saying in the bio there the, about the traumatic bit of the childhood it was just referring to alcoholized stepfather up until the age of 10 and then bullying all through school because i was so quiet and reflective into my own dream experiences that had been having young but um the real thing happened when i was 13 where i had a repetitive dream basically it all begins from there and my whole life's been shaped by that one week in time uh, where i got the same dream eight times over seven nights and each time it would repeat deeper into the details of a village somewhere that i'd never seen before the shape or form of and the gardens around them and the woodlands around that 
there there weren't in squares and rows and things. Everything was kind of uh, really harmoniously melted together. So night after night, it got so obsessive almost that I said to my mother I was moving out more permanently to the woodlands that were left when I was 13 just to sit by my fire and write notes, basically. I really started getting into the detail of what this place was. Did it exist or was I supposed to build it? Or was there someone out there who was on their way to creating this and I had a part in it? Um, so for kind of three-year period, I was in the woodlands, basically, in the north of England, in a waterproof sleeping bag, and uh, sitting, drawing pictures of what I remember. So community I kept visiting. The ship I'm in today pulled out of that vision and manifested, basically. But, uh, yeah, I went into the army at the age of 16 uh, when I got kind of did all I could do in that woodland there. Very shortly after they invaded Kuwait, and I learned about the relationship to oil, keeping the infrastructure going, and how it's become a militarized issue around the planet as national security, just to keep the lights on. So there's conflict brewing. And when Kuwait was invaded, fortunately, I didn't get sent. Uh, we got pulled back to guard the airports in England at the time. But I heard the the conflict and what it was about, and I got my questions answered. So I started rebelling throughout a three-year period because I'd signed up for 13 years and the Official Secrets Act. So I was kind of stuck anyway, and unless I broke a few rules enough times. And they kicked me out after the third year. And I went straight up in the treetops uh, in, as part of the direct action camps in southern England, southern England in the, the oak forests that were getting torched, basically, for new roads. And again, it was related to the oil issue, the transport, the growing infrastructure. And um, I've got quite high pattern recognition. Uh, things stick on quite a macro scale and a good memory to go with it. And I, I started mapping it visually almost in my mind compared to the original vision I was carrying through those years. So it was always developing. I was always on the lookout for this magical little village and creating it parallel to that, just in case it didn't exist. And in those trees, uh, during those protest years, that's when my uh, I met my first Swedish girlfriend, and uh, she was the one who became pregnant with my son, who I soon followed. Uh, I said I'd change my life directly if ever it was about children. Then I wouldn't be on the anti-anything side. I would have to get on the pro-solution side of life and set that example and um, try and get some good projects going, basically, based on everything I'd seen of life so far. And um, it wasn't, I was only in Sweden um, a few months when a friend of mine from back in England remembered me telling him about the dream and describing this little village. And he posted me a big pile of photographs in, in the snail mail uh, to Sweden, because I'd just moved on a one-way ticket here. And it was Earth ships, basically. And I flipped, because I swear I recognized them immediately, but the difference was the ones in my mind were covered in vegetation and life and uh, trees and bushes and plants and animals and insects everywhere and uh, happy people in the village square somewhere. I could hear music and... So it was a really enchanting place to, to go back to, uh, especially after starting life a bit more on the dark side there with um, a few more traumatic times in baggage. 
So I, I ran immediately to the local municipalities. I just knew on you could call it faith, basically, because the heart exploded that this is what I needed to be doing. I could see it clearly. And I, I ran to the authorities who promised me that I could be the first in Scandinavia to experiment and build a research ship of this kind by my own design. And I went to meetings there almost weekly for a year to discuss with the local planners and engineers. But then three of the elders in the town hall after that year, they, um, because it was such a pioneering project, they started thinking too much about the money and if something went wrong and suddenly they dropped the project and we got into the situation where they promised us so much, but, um, the next they promised us to the young engineers was we'd get automatic planning permits for if we bought our own land somewhere within this municipality. So uh, we we bought the mother of my my second uh, second and third children's grandmother's land and went back to them. And even that became a, a conflict because they'd switched town architects and it wasn't anyone's particular fault, any one one fault. Um, it was just that we were first in Scandinavia to try and present something that broke away so radically, I guess you could say, from the normal infrastructure. My point is, when I analyzed my own design from pulling it out of that dream, we started adapting and adapting and adapting to shrink the, the footprint and impact on the planet to associate with that and all the knowledge I had so far about animals and plants and their life cycles and with the highest of respects, trying to see if it would all fit closer and closer. So um, the design never really ends. It's it's still evolving with observation and time. I, I'd like to in interject something here. You talked about footprint and probably uh, um, a driving force behind the dream, a military activism, and actually you dreaming about the village. And yet you visited mm. the Hopi, I, I see, in that time that we, we spent together a few weeks ago. But, you know, yeah. the team came from, from that and things started to make common sense to you. Um, things became clearer. But now let's, let's continue with the design of the, the Earthship and how that began once you've, you visited New Mexico or Arizona. Uh, I was asked to do online support in Arizona, Big Mountain, uh, by DNA elders, and I wasn't planning on intruding on Hopi territory. You know, I had no business being there. I, I know it's uh, sensitive with all this new age thing and people and trying to invade space and things. So I was very painfully aware of to stay where I was asked to be. And we were basically just out driving through the desert, delivering uh, new medicines and new tools that FBI had taken off grandmothers, we were helping key watchman uh, while he was alive. And uh, it was him. Well, uh, we were sleeping in a ceremonial Hogan while we were helping out on his site. And that's where I had another little dream there. And it was a, a desert dream and um, first of its kind where there was just very basic tracks and then a fork in the tracks uh, by a specific set of three or four stones and a couple of small plants. Yeah, I just followed that track, but I never really got to anywhere specifically. I didn't think, I told the people who were with me, who I brought with me about that dream, because it was a bit odd, but then got on with my day. And a key watchman came out and asked us, oh, can you go pick up four car tires for my pickup? 
over in the Hopi villages, uh, two hours drive over the Mesa. So, um, yeah, we, we absolutely agreed to do that. Um, we went out looking for this little garage outside of Hota Villa, I think it was. And we found the guy after a couple of hours and uh, got the tires and turned around to head back through the desert where there's no roads, just sandy tracks. And uh, I took an ex-Swedish military guy with me who's used to driving on snow up in Lulio, up in the north. <laughs> uh, so he was my driver. And so he, he wasn't really a spiritually minded guy in the deepest of sense, I wouldn't have said at that point. But then he just instinctively stopped on halfway back to Dinatar, uh, to Key Watchman's place at Red Willow Springs. He said, uh, oh, before we go any further, isn't there anything else left that we need to be doing here before you leave the Hopi territories? And I said, oh, <laughs> oh no, uh, uh, no, I definitely don't want to intrude. And uh, that's a fire clan village there, traditional, one of the last traditional stronghold villages. I'm aware of the people who live there and to give them their privacy and especially their ceremonial privacy. It was November, there was things going on. And uh, I didn't need to ask anyone. I'd already done a little bit of homework before we left out of her. So he started the, the car again and we we're about to drive off and he turned it off again. He said, are you sure? Go out with the car and have a look around uh, one last time and see if there's anything else you want to do up here before you go down to Red Willow Springs again. And I got out of the car uh, and he speaks really bad English as well. So <laughs> it got a bit annoying, like speaking to Arnold Schwarzenegger after a while. <laughs> but we had a laugh about that too. I'm not being evil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I did go out in the end, and weirdly, I saw this collection of stones, like a boulder and a smaller boulder, and then two small pebbles. And um, just on familiarity, uh, my focus drifted down to these really, really small desert plants that were beside them. And that was the only time I looked close enough to notice there was tire tracks swinging around that point and behind a hill. And I thought it was really weird. That was the moment it broke my dream that uh, I, I recognize a turnoff exactly like this, fresh in memory. And um, so I just hopped back in the car and said, oh, just humor me here. Just take this bend around the uh, the hill here. So he did. And we, we drove right into the heart of Hauteville, a traditional village, right into the main square. There was just wild dogs all around us and people twitching their curtains and nobody coming out in this uh, bright red Dodge 4x4. And my heart just sank. I thought, oh, no, typical white guys just blundering on in there in the worst of places. It felt like the highest of embarrassment to me because I knew where I was at that point. One girl came out of one of the little Pueblo houses towards the car. She was going somewhere past, and I just panicked. But I just tried to save face and blurt it out. Oh, we're just innocently looking for this guy. And I said his name, and she she just looked towards the nearest Pueblo house and shouted, no, Dennis, and this guy was coming out of his house with his hood up. And um, it was the guy whose name I mentioned, basically. Uh, the one and only name of some guy, random guy I had never met before. And it was the right village, the right street, the right house. And he was like, oh, uh, I was just on my way to a ceremony, but uh, do you want to come in for a coffee? <laughs> it's like, what? It, it was already quite a mind-blowing, uh, least expected situation. But uh, we accepted his hospitali hospitality and went in for a coffee. 
So I think this is a great interlude here is where we can talk about your, your home in Sweden, right? And that you're still following that dream that you encountered with the Hopi, with the Navajo or Dene. And that was, what, in the 2000s or something like that? 2004. 2004. Oh, yeah. That was a very active time. Um, we had Chief Iron Lions here two two years before that. The day we bought the land, uh, he was in Sweden and came out and did a talk as well. Well, it was just an empty flat field before I got my hands on it. <laughs> yeah, talk, talk from that. And you talk about the ecological footprint and that your thinking is influenced by the seven generations that you say. I've been privileged to have a lot of good native teachers along the way who've taken their time with me and I've really respected enough to listen as deep as possible and take everything on board very seriously and the, the biggest one of all from that period was chief foreign lines turning up on the land he was out visiting swedish politicians and scientists but he made time and space to come and visit our empty field to share a vision and give a talk and um, he did it very responsibly. He inspired me by the way he spoke, which I, I will learn to do better in time, becoming an elder. But I was very privileged to get a lot of uh, Haudenosaunee teachings shared with me about the great law of peace and how their societies build up. And I was paying great attention to, to that. And that's when the seven generations um, discussions took place. And that really made a lot of sense, that, that longest perspective to keep the most uh, fluidly stable balance throughout time and space uh, of all, all things in life. Uh, so there'd be peace and there would be sustainability for everybody, basically. Inspired me into this, looking at this empty field again, uh, the same time I walked around with Oren and I could see it all already, but I just couldn't articulate it. So I had to start drawing it and doing it, basically. And that's where it all began. Yeah, I have to say, Kevin, that when I went into the Earthship, it felt very much like I've been there before, a deja vu, being there. So it, it, it oh. like you say, we're meant to be there. So I want to share that with you. When you, when I saw through out from your, your hallway near your kitchen window, is that you have a little um, garden of sorts and part of that um, permaculture that you talk about. And, you know, you hold the Medicine Ways Cooperative, which is based in Sweden, from these dreams. And people need to put this together that I don't know if you're say you're doing this in protest of capitalism, but surely you know that maybe capitalism and any other ism that is has authority may not be the answer for all life. It may be an answer for particular privileged human, but not all life. Yes, I think you're right in saying that as well, because I'm doing it more out of love and concern for all of the small critters, because I see a very bad trajectory coming. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm very pattern literate and because I've been looking very closely and uh, scrutinizing the, the system we live in, the dominant system of the day, I've seen the curve, I've seen the trajectory through time and space and what a disaster it's going to be for our life by following that path. And I'm not holding anybody to blame for anything and I've got rid of a lot of anger over the years. Yeah. That's been part of my personal journey to be able to swallow what I've been seeing for so long. Um, but it certainly isn't getting better on the macro side of things. Uh, we seem to be turning into a, a planetary scale um, disease by our infrastructure and what it's eating uh, in life, in terms of life. 
So I'm very, very determined to go after the statistics of smallest footprints as cradles of harboring as many species in community and in relation as possible, at the same time as reinserting the human element back into that circle of life. Um, but especially here in the cold climate north, uh, a lot of this has come out of uh, my own culture that's spread into the world more and more. There's a, a lot of aggressions and a lot of greed that's come out of it and a lot of class system, feudal systems, and, and leading to these bigger wars and weapons and things. So I'm not proud of any of those parts of my own culture. And um, that's definitely the looming on the horizon that's going to take us over the edge collectively, all of those things together especially the tumorous like infrastructure with oil and uh, these non-renewables mm. and what we do to actually secure these things. Um, and then my granddaughter came along. <laughs> so um, that really took it to a whole new level and it's like, oh, this is it. This is research over. <laughs> this is the real thing now. Uh, I'm seeing these seven generations starting to stretch from me and out into the world. And it really cracked the whip a little bit to, to get back to it and take this more seriously than ever and take a little bit of an eye off the news and the darkness that, that's spreading out there, not get involved, not engage it. And um, just try and keep my own energy high and vibration high to do the work with a good heart. And um, yeah, we've got bigger and bigger visions and ideals for the future that can grow out of this as well. So that's driving me as well as real excitement. And we'll continue First Voices Radio interview with Kevin Schott, who's building an Earthship known as a Midgard black ship. You can follow his progress on YouTube, called The Babble from the Bubble. Again, we'll continue after this breathing space with Wabanag and their song Walelan, meaning thank you. teachings spoken by my elders let me see the wisdom through this eagle feather we all sit in the circle so let us come together when the truth rings out For my hometown, my people, my family, friends who gotta do it, yo, I do it to protect you. My kid, my grandparents, friends with the baby school. Son asked me, go stop it, I'ma try people. Do my best and he don't know. Yeah, got my shot and I'm dead glowing. Yeah, can see the bright light at the end of the tunnel. Future looking bright when you get back home. Well,
And we invite you in return to listening, and thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. I'm your guide, Teokazen Ghost Horse. Now to continue with Kevin Schott as he explains intersecting with Native people and building an earthship, a semi-underground dwelling built with his hands for the last 20 years manifesting today. Thank you for talking about the backbone of, you know, why you're doing it, the, the, the drive, the incentive that, that gives you your grandchildren future grandchildren, even the past you come from, there's this violent structure to set up, but yet it's a deep history of where you landed and where you are now. And it's an unassuming, you know, you didn't even know, I didn't even know it was there when I came upon the airship. Like, where is it? And there it was, you know, you had to, <laughs> right? You adapted to the earth yes. and in that earth adapted to you. And I think people lose that. We think that we can just build anywhere we want because of property and domination, as you have you've noted in your bio. The work that you're doing now, um, completing the airship, it seems that you are, are determined, as you said, but this is the phase where it's very crucial. The, the supplies, the everything is running a little short and you underestimated, overestimated probably in some places, and now we're working. But I'm going to put that all on the fact that your grandchildren, they don't know about colonialism. They don't know about imperialism or white supremacy or slavery or predatory form of invasive capitalism. Or They don't know about the world. That's a great reason to show them that there is a different way of living and a different way of understanding that life of, of the living. Yes, because otherwise we end up in this blame game, and it's, that's not going to serve anyone. It's going to suck up everyone's time in more conflict and rip families further apart along the way and uh, devolve trust, basically, dissolve it uh, between people. So the the, own, oh, the phrase I do like is, uh, it's not enough to curse the darkness, it's necessary to light the light. And that's the simplest way I can see the situation is like, well, what do we do? We, we don't want to feed that darkness. And the only way to see better is to get some kind of light lit and some kind of fire going uh, somewhere to illuminate things a little bit more clearly of what's possible. So, so Midgard Blackship. Yes. Why did, why did you give it that name? Oh, you want to go there? Yeah, let's go there as short as you can, clearly. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wait for it. Um, Well, first of all, innocently, when we bought the land, we already knew in Viking times it was an old lake bottom, um, this basin of a, a valley that... We bought this two and a half hectares and and just below the topsoil, it's obviously um, sand, lake sand from an older time and the water's all gone and it's turned into farmland by the 1700s, 1800s and that's the way it stayed. So, so we had this wide open flat grassy field basically between the little bit of woodland and um, so the name Midgord, <laughs> it was a long 20-year build-up to that by digging into this lake bed and realizing there was something off by what I was finding under the topsoil from a stratification perspective. Um, There appeared to be upside-down 
sand layers with what I would say is some very basic artifacts from a much older time, which I identified as leatherworking tools. And but also stones used for building that were obviously dressed stones from the Iron Age. And I even traced a local mine where these stones were being extracted in the nearby village. I was finding them in the wrong layers of the stratification. The prehistoric, the, the Stone Age, if you want to call it that, uh, years, were higher up and below the topsoil. And down below, about a meter down, between two layers with a, a red stripe in between, there was the, the Iron Age stones, and a lot of them looked pretty messed up and burnt and exploded, impacted in some way. And from the military time, I've seen uh, ballistics and things and what different weapons can do to, to stone, and there's something not sitting right with me. And so... I, what I promised the Hopi in 2004 was the work that I took from vision here in the land of the Yurta, I would respectfully first go to the elders and ask and inquire and listen of the history and where my part in the evolution could peacefully and positively connect to, to be able to do this work that I wanted to do. But the weird thing was it was an eerie silence everywhere I went. The elders, uh, the local villages, they couldn't go beyond the 1700s. There was like this big amnesia in the whole people, basically. And again, because of military studies and things, I was starting to, to realize there was trauma in the population and a complete loss of memory from a certain period of time. No, only, ooh, only about a thousand years missing from that memory. Uh, so I'm starting to put the pieces together. Something big's happened here that nobody's talking about, and perhaps because nobody can, because no one can remember. And so after, I'll, I'll try and shorten this up a bit, but um, it was a 15 to 20 year process of getting spiraling out in the landscape and starting to try and find fragments of the oral tradition from our northern, the, the parts of our northern cultures up here in Scandinavia and the Isles, and comparing notes, basically, uh, and finding names that matched from the same period to sort those oral traditions into a chronological timeline until one particular generation and place and time really started to stand out something traumatic had happened in that period. And so I started looking for archaeology um, that had been recorded, dated, and things from around this area to see what that could tell. And we were starting to zoom in a little bit then on the Iron Age, and in the end, 536 AD, there was a big worldwide event, super volcanic, and it wiped out two-thirds of the people of Northern Europe. And this thing in Scandinavian tradition that we were finally written down in the 1200s in Iceland uh, called the Eddas, basically they belonged here um, in the heart of Scandinavia where the people actually scattered from, from that time. Iceland was only colonized in the 800s. This event happened 300 years previously, uh, what they call the Folkvandringstige. Something happened that split the people in all directions at the same time. And if you go to our oral tradition, it, it suggests quite clearly that Ragnarok, it was a, a big event, a very dark event that rained debris out of the sky, uh, that all the stars looked like they were falling and forests burned. There was a, a huge event. 
And it seems like there was something on Iceland and maybe even North America that matched that same thing that happened in Krakatoa the same year. And it caused 10 years of global famine in winter, minus degrees in summer. And that's what they call Fimble winter in the Scandinavian tradition. And that followed with my family line to the Scottish Isles. Uh, still a little bit of these things being retold and people's ancestry included, which followed with those fragments. And so I started just following those breadcrumbs and slowly but surely I realized where I was in the heart of that amnesia among the people who'd, uh, they'd had the history taken in multiple waves and after that conflicts 250 years the landscape was emptied because there was no clean water to drink and after 250 years all these kings from royal bloodlines came flooding back to fight over the traditional heartlands and the, the big legendary battles that um stockholm doesn't take seriously credibly uh, in academia they they really cut out some bloodlines and wars and things from ever happening <laughs> so that they have no rights to land here anymore. These guys became the Vikings <laughs> because uh, they were looking for new lands. Uh, uh, some of them went off at a tangent and uh, not proud of a few things there in the, the family line, but uh, farmers, they were, they were looking to farm land anyway and keep out the conflicts of these bigger kings that the church was starting to prop up. And uh, it all started coming back, basically. Uh, I was starting to map things at that point by the place names that were still on the landscape and finding the dates, the earliest dates these names were mentioned and connect to the local language and dialect. And I was hearing things from Key Watchmen uh, when I was over in Arizona there about hang on every word from the local language because there's so much encoded memory in those words that even the people themselves have forgotten uh, at what date they root each word, when they came into use, and what the original depth of the intention really was of something big, which has been minimum, minimalized today. And uh, it all came together here in this one place, and Midgord is part of that oral tradition that this was here in the lakes here, the community of Midgord. So it helped me name the ship as we started putting everything back on the map and the pieces back together. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was what you're getting at without going too deeply into ancestral lines. And Yeah, this is uh, awesome. That's awesome. I think <laughs> prime reason, part of the, the, the astounding, the mesmerizing history that you tell, you know, the incentive of uh, the, the, the potential of what this history could house, so to speak. And I think this is why mm. people like you are needed to, to look at maybe something post-capitalism, post-colonialism, everything is post, because we mm. know they say climate change, and we know that there's there, the water is, is a key issue now, um, mm. all these things, but having a small ecological footprint, as you say, is mm. is we take the word progress out of it it's not going back to the stone age or iron age or any age it's what's mm. happening now so yeah. I want people to understand what kevin shot is doing here and completely off grid by then by the time he turns 50. but if you could you know this community to be a patreon.com medicine slash medicine ways is one of the ways to look into because i know you need a little uh, support from that and um, so we're in the 
fourth and final phase of fundraising during the research period. So, uh, yeah, it's for the main front greenhouse and final connection of all the systems, and then this ship can sail. That's right. <laughs> and, and it will support a community to be, like it's the community to be. And it, um, if it's not a community now, you know, which is going to be, again, to be, um, that's what we're looking at. And I think that's so great to have you on the air here on First Voices Radio. Did I forget something that you could explain in a minute or less? <laughs> in a minute or less. Yeah, I know. That's oh, like saying, they say to me, can you explain Native history in five minutes? Um, <laughs> no, we no, can't do that. Yeah. This is some kind of Guinness Book of Records thing you're I looking know, after. I know. <laughs> I'm not sure it's possible. That's no. one heck of a challenge. Um, uh, I'm just going to go for it, basically. Uh, life's too short. It's too precious. My time is more valuable than money. I live with zero income. I live totally non-profit to do the work. I'm in service permanently to land and life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's secured by having kids and grandkids to think about. Yeah. So uh, people can actually trust and believe that this is not going away. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> this is something that's going to keep mutating and growing uh, the work that I'm involved in. Right. Is is there a place that we can look on the web to find anything besides your um, YouTube uh, following your progress called Babble from the Bubble? <laughs> um, no, just now there's uh, those two things because I, I'm trying to make more and more time for better edited videos to doc start documenting what's coming next. Yeah. Because it's only now it's going to get really exciting. The, the rest of the backstory is a bit up and down and dark here and there. And we can start leaving that out of the focus now and look at how close we are to to where we want to be. Yeah. And then we can rep replicate and self-fund this from the value of the work already done. We can take it from there and expand exponentially in all climates, all cultures. We can adapt this way of thinking and designing whole village ecologies. Yeah, because mm. a lot of, lot of the stories, even the Hopi and about native people in the western hemisphere when when the atmosphere changed and you know that we had to go underground and this is yeah kind uh. of like that that story but um what can i what else can i say um i think people need to pay attention to this um it's uh you've had several natives from the united states uh and the western hemisphere visit you um, you said Orrin Lyons and a friend that's passed away, Leo Yankton. I think we all really were inspired by what you're doing there, Kevin. I want to give you kudos for that. Oh, well, that means more to me than you know. Just, uh, I've been trying to be active in Indigenous issues for over 26 years, and uh, I don't do it intrusively, but when whenever if something crosses my path and I get asked personally, then... It's a private thing. I don't put these things out there on social media yeah. when it happens. I get engaged. and yeah. So, yeah, it, it is quite a few people I've had contact with and privileged to have good elderly teachers along the way, which was a bonus. Uh, yeah. So my gratitude's back towards um, First Nations of Turtle Island <laughs> being uh, the biggest help every step of the way. Great. So, okay, Kevin, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you here on First Voices Radio and um, be at home and make it your day. Thank you very much, and you take care over there.
grade seven, you riding no cool ride, killing time, flying high as I hold on tight to you, to you. Did I blow my mind on the wild side, singing hallelujah to him every night with you, with you? Cause I'm not gonna lie, say I've been alright. Cause it feels like I've been living upside down. What can I say? I'm surviving, crawling out these sheets to see another day. What can I say? I'm surviving And I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna be fine I think I'll be fine Ooh, yeah Like a thunder cloud in November rain Is the black dog out running wild again For you For you Trying to stream my way to a better life But I daydream crash like vanilla sky to you To you Cause I'm not gonna lie Say I've been alright Cause it feels like I've been living upside down What can I say? I'm surviving Crawling out these sheets to see another day What can I say? I'm surviving And I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna be fine I think I'll be fine I'm surviving, just crawling out these sheets to see another day. What can I say? I'm surviving, and I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine. I think I'll be fine. And that's One-Eyed Jacks surviving. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokas in Ghost Horse. You know, you're always welcome here to check out where we broadcast, rebroadcast, podcast, any kind of cast, as long as it's out there. Go to Facebook and look for First Voices Radio. And go to the web and look for First Voices Radio. And you'll find us somewhere. It's out there. So you get a lot of hits when you tune in. And uh, I just want to say, thank you for joining us here. Uh, we'll see you next time. We're going to go out with Doogie McLean, Turning Away. I know classic we used to play here a lot here on First Voices Radio. All right, Doksha. In darkness we do 
Turning away, turning away from 
tried to buy the mountains, they can try to buy the trees. They can offer you good money for the very air you breathe. They can take away the land, say it no longer belongs to the people who have called it home all along. Oh yeah, they can scatter oil rigs in the valleys, strike the tree line from the sky, punch a road right through the sacred place where wild things once went to die. They can pour concrete in a river, make it flood out on the land, so much for whatever lived there. But it's time we take a stand, and they will not take the mountain that they have come to kill. They will not take the mountain, they do think they will. There's a spirit in this land, some tough reckoning. They will not just wreck it, along with every other thing. They won't take the mountain. They can gut their legislation. They can turn it inside out. They can say it's jobs or else it's owls. Man, that's what it's about. They can lie through their teeth. How statistics back them up They can make us illegal They can lock us up But they will not take the mountain That they have come to kill They will not take the mountain But they think they will There's a spirit in this land Some tough reckoning They will not just wreck it Along with every other thing They won't take the mountain they will not take the mountain They won't take the mountain No The mountain has more power than they know The mountain has more power than they know. Be quiet now and feel that power grow. Be quiet now and feel that power grow. It starts with a whisper. It starts with a whisper. Be quiet now and feel that power grow it grows in a whisper be quiet now and feel that power grow it starts with a whisper be quiet now and feel that power grow and it grows and grows be quiet now on this earth just waiting to be seen they're vast and undisturbed never touched by a machine and since you're nothing but the seeds you plant and your strength is the spirit you keep why not find a place that's sacred and breathe deep and they will not take the mountain 
that they have come to kill. They will not take the mountain, they never will. There's a spirit in this land, some tough reckoning. They will not just wreck it, along with every other thing. They won't take the mountain, they won't take the mountain, no. They won't take the mountain, they will not take this mountain. 